This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome to the Pilot Theater. This is Crypto Screen season finale. Uh, we're very honored today. Our first time we have a director, writer, director joining us for Scripta Screen. So, uh, Scripta Screen is produced by the Carsey Wolf Center, Department of Film and Media Studies, and these lovely Pilot Theater interns that you see. They're the ones who really put on the show for us, so we're grateful to them. Uh, you can see them on camera and stuff. Uh, so let's get right to it. Uh, what was it like seeing uh, Field of Dreams in the Pollock Theater? Um, it's, well, first of all, it's fantastic seeing it in a beautiful theater with great projection and great sound because that's the way it was meant to be seen. Um, and uh, it was especially wonderful seeing it in the Pollock Theater because Tom Pollock is here who greenlit this movie. He was the chairman of Universal and it would not have been made had he not been here. So I'm thrilled that we get to see it in the... Um, so do people always come up to you and whisper, if you build it, he will come? Yeah. yeah. Actually, usually they say, you know, if you build it, they will come. And I say, no, no, it's he will come. <laughs> they always get it wrong. Uh, so what did, uh, when you read the book, was it was based on a book, what attracted you to the story? The idea of second chances, father, son, dead baseball players? Uh, you know, it was a combination of things. I, I was given the book by a friend, a studio executive, who said, there's no way we can ever make this as a movie, but I want you to read this. And I said, what's it about? She said, it's about a farmer. And I said, eh, I'm not really a, I'm a say boy. I don't. And she said, no, no, wait, he hears a voice. I said, oh boy, am I the wrong person for this? Because I'm like the least new age person you would ever meet. I don't believe in anything, essentially. And, uh, and she says, no way, but then he has to kidnap J.D. Salinger. And I said, okay, stop. I am not reading this stupid book. The more she tried to describe it, the stupider it sounded. And um, an experience that I then uh, shared when I tried to pitch it to studios, because it just sounded dumb. I, I took the book home. I, I, it felt like a, a homework assignment. And I got in bed and I started reading and it's the only time in my life that I, I lived that cliche of you know you, I couldn't put the book down I stayed up all night till I finished reading it I was just mesmerized by it I thought it was so it was full of surprises uh, every page or two it, it surprised me but it never felt wrong it, every surprise felt to me like oh of course that would happen but I couldn't possibly see it coming and when it was when I'd finished the book, I was so thoroughly satisfied and enchanted by it, and I thought, well, why can't you make a movie out of this? There's so many visual things happening, and it's great character stuff. And we couldn't get it set up anywhere, uh, really, until Tom Pollock read it and, and said, okay, we'll, we'll, he, I remember he said, you can only make this movie if a voice tells you to. <laughs> and, uh, and he let us make the movie. Uh, so, so you got the book, and you you had you adapted the book. What was the biggest challenge when you started adapting it? You know, the the um, it was. I hate to say this. I hate to admit this, but it was the easiest script I ever wrote, uh, for two reasons. One is that W. P. Kinsella, who wrote the book, had done all the heavy lifting. He had created this amazing experience. But also, I I had a, it was, I think it was three or four years of telling people the story out loud before I finally got to write the script. And it's very, it's a really good way to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work. You know, you tell somebody the story and you can see their eyes roll into the back of their heads when you get to the parts that don't make sense. 
you, and you know when they yawn, you know, okay, this is the boring part, I gotta work on that. By the time I started to write, I, I had it figured out, and really the only big change I made was in the book, on, on page one, he hears the voice once, and he goes to his wife and says, I gotta build this field. And so we thought, well, no, we have to stretch it out a little bit. We've got to make it feel more real. In the first chapter, Shoeless Joe shows up, and the farmer says to him, hey, my dad used to play ball. Would, would you let him come back and play with you guys? And Shoeless Joe says, sure. And two-thirds of the way through the book, the father shows up, a surprise to neither Ray nor to the reader. And the last chapter of the book is, is called the, the Rapture of J.D. Salinger, when the writer gets to go into the, into the corn and join the team. And all I did was say, let's make the father showing up a surprise and let's put that at the end. That's really all I did. Now, I was watching the behind the scenes and Ray had a brother. In the original oh, that's yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. In the book, Ray had a twin brother. There was a character. Uh, there was a lot of, by the way, please read this book. Shoeless Joe is a great book. There's a character called Eddie Kid Sissons, the world's oldest living Chicago cub. It's a wonderful subplot. In the, we couldn't find room for it in the story. And in the book, it's really J.D. JD Salinger. He goes to kidnap. Um, and it's really pretty wonderful. It's a great book. And then, uh, oh, speaking of that, so you, would you change the character Jay Salinger to Terrence Mann? What was the choice behind? You know, I, Salinger had written, a, Salinger's lawyers had written a letter to the publisher of the book uh, saying, our client, Jerome David Salinger, protests this, what do they call He said this fictitious and sentimental portrait of himself. And I thought, that's great. He's pissed off that it was sentimental. <laughs> that's Salinger, you know? And, uh, you know, I love J.D. Salinger, and, and I've read almost everything he's ever written, including, you know, obscure short stories from the 40s. He's, he's a great writer, and he's only asked one thing of us all these years, which was to leave him alone, and I thought that was a reasonable request. So I, th- I thought, okay, I'll, I, I won't call it J.D. Salinger. And the first draft of the script, it was, I don't know, G.R. Messenger or something. I don't, it, <laughs> it was a very thinly disguised J.D. Salinger. And... I kept thinking, I've got to do something else with this character. And one day I said to myself, okay, what, what is really the essence of what, what do I need this character to do? I need, I need him to be kidnapped by Ray. So who would it be fun to see Ray have to kidnap? I thought, well, a big guy. You know, it would be fun to see him have to kidnap a big guy. And I had just seen Fences on Broadway, which was maybe the most extraordinary stage performance I'd ever seen, James Earl Jones. And I started to laugh at that. I'd like to see Ray have to kidnap James Earl Jones. <laughs> and then all, the, all these character details started to come to me. And at first I thought, oh, of course, there's this movie that purports to be about America, and, and so far it's a completely lily-white experience. It'd be great to have a person of color. Um, and I thought, well, he would be a civil rights veteran. Uh, he hung out with the Beatles. He coined the phrase, make love, not war. I started writing out all these kind of like wacky ideas for this character. Uh, and just fell in love with the idea of this person. And it actually became much more fun to me than J.D. Salinger would have been because I would have felt very constrained by the real J.D. Salinger and if we had gone that way. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled we didn't. And, and James Earl told me he read the script and said to he told me actually the day we shot the scene of his big, you know, people will come speech, he said, look, Phil, I know this speech will never be in the movie, but the day I read the script, I said to my wife, I'm taking this role because I want to do this scene, and I know it's not going to be in the film. They always cut this stuff out. And I said, they're going to cut off my arm before they cut the scene out. Are you kidding me? And he said, yeah, I don't think this is going to make it. And I can't imagine the movie now without that speech of his. It's so great. And the day we shot it, he said to me, and I was waiting the whole 
shoot, I kept waiting. Oh, I, one, you know, on you know, July 27th or whatever, James Earl Jones is going to do this speech on the ball field. It's going to be incredible. And we were just about to shoot, and he said to me, oh, by the way, I don't want to preach this. I want to just kind of just say it, just say it kind of straight. And my heart sank. And I said, okay, how come? And he said, well, it just feels egotistical. I just want to, I said, I like the words. I just want to say the words. And I thought, oh, okay. And he did it. And it was beautiful. It was, it was the right way to do it. The next day, we turned the cameras around to get reaction shots of everybody who was on the bleachers. And James Earl, who was not working that day, came to the set to read those lines off camera. And he said to me, you know, I feel kind of bad I didn't get to preach that yesterday. He said, would you mind terribly if I did it now off camera? I said, mind? No. And he let it rip. And it was, I'm sorry that you don't get to hear it, but it, does, it doesn't exist. It, it was sensational. And it's like, you know, I, I saw, well, 100 yards away, I saw the Teamsters, you know, coming out of the trucks. You know, <laughs> it was great. That voice just filled the Iowa sky. It was pretty special. And really, you needed someone as strong as James Old Jones to pull it off. I think yeah, so. I, I absolutely think so. It required somebody with so much inherent charisma that he didn't have to... And the same with Shoeless Joe. Uh, you know, Ray Liotta. I wanted somebody who had a sense of mystery and kind of danger about him. They, they wouldn't have to push it. You're just standing there looking at you. You'd go, well, there's something going on here. And I thought both of them brought tremendous power to their roles. Uh, it is my favorite cute meet scene, I like to call it, when he meets Kevin Costner. <laughs> uh, did you need somebody like Costner to be able to stay, share the screen with James Aldrin, someone strong enough to oh, balance sure. with him? You know, Kevin, we made lists... Uh, of actors for this role, and Kevin was never on the list because he had just shot Bull Durham. And at that time, and Tom will attest to this, a baseball movie was considered highly uncommercial. And so the idea of an actor doing two baseball movies in a row was just unthinkable. You know, um, but we didn't know Kevin. Uh, uh, had, had I known, I said, oh, believe me, he's going to do it. Um, we just didn't have him on the list. And one of your executives... Josh Donnan ran into Kevin at a restaurant, I think, and said to him, hey, I got a script I want to send you. And he, he gave it to him, and Kevin called him the next day and said, look, I, I'd love to do this if you're interested in me. And we were actually talking about offering it to someone else at the time, and I just said, clear the decks. This is the guy. If, he, if he's crazy enough to do two baseball movies in a row, he's crazy enough to play Ray Kinsella, you know? And uh, he and I met for breakfast, um, and uh, I said, uh, you know, I, I just I think you'd be great in this, and you know, I want to make I want to make something that's you know that that's great and that lives on. And he said, great. He said, I'm your guy, and he said, I'll. You're going to feel a lot of pressure when things get tough to change things in the script, and I'll be the guy standing behind your shoulder, whispering, "Don't change anything." And I thought that was a great. Uh, sort of not just vote of confidence but a source of support for a director to know that this you know giant star at this time he was a huge star was going to say we're making this film and I'll, I'm with you I'm, I'm standing right next to you it's kind of interesting because a lot of the scenes he's he is not the lead like he's letting Terrence Mann take the scene or Burt Lancaster right so it's, it's fascinating that he pulled back actually there absolutely and when he when he was pitching to Ray Liotta you know he and Ray came up at the same time together as young uh, undiscovered actors. They knew each other in those days. And, and I have a feeling that they felt very competitive with each other. And Leota, who's a very good athlete, he was a soccer player in high school, had never played baseball. And he had to learn how to swing and do all that stuff. Kevin is a phenomenal baseball player. And 
for that scene, Kevin had to get on the pitcher's mound and act like a guy. As, as Kevin said that night, he says, I have to pitch like I'm a duck. He had to, <laughs> he had to be sort of awkward and, and throw pitches that Ray could really hit. And if anybody pitches, you know that you can easily make someone look like not a good batter by just throwing it just kind of in the wrong place. And he was serving up really nice pitches for Ray to hit. And the shot when, when, when Ray, when he says, just see if you can hit my curveball, and, and Leota hits the ball right back at Costner, and he has to dive out of the way. That actually happened. It was just, we would, it just happened. And at the end of the night, I remember saying to, to Kevin, there was some really generous acting going on here tonight, and I really appreciate it. And he said, thank you for noticing. <laughs> because he really, he really wanted to show what he could do in this film, and he never got the chance. Now, obviously, in Bull Durham and other films, he did, but this film, he had to look like an amateur. Uh, I actually found the Amy Madigan's character very interesting because I have girlfriends when I tell them uh, I hear voices, they run and hide. Yes. But in this case, yep. she's very supportive. Was that a challenge for you, making the believability when no. you developed her character? No, it's actually the moment that I fell in love with the book was, uh, it was on page two when he says to her, I heard this voice and I think it means I have to build a baseball field so shoeless Joe Jackson can come back and play. And she says, oh love, if you feel you have to do it, then do it. And I thought, oh, my God, I've never read that character before. I was ready for the wife to say, no, no, you can't do this. This is crazy. You know, we've got all this money problems. She just said, yeah, go for it. And I thought, that's a totally original character in, in, a, in a story about a guy doing something crazy. Everybody around him always says no. And uh, we, we cast. It was the hardest role to cast. Everybody auditioned for this part. We screen tested three or four wonderful actresses, and I was having a really hard time making up my mind. And then I just, the night that I had to decide, I said to myself, Annie is spunky. Amy's spunky. Let's go for spunk. And uh, she was great. She was really fun. It was a lot of fun. And they had a lot of chemistry together, her and Costner. Yes. So, and even the little girl, too. I mean, children actors are, I know, are difficult to direct sometimes. Did you have, was she easy to direct to? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she was six. It wasn't really her fault, but <laughs> very difficult. Uh, <laughs> so you cast one legendary actor. So you said, "Why don't we do another one?" Burt yeah. Lancaster. Yeah, um, <laughs> and actually, we had originally offered it to Jimmy Stewart, who passed on it. Um, and uh, there was a list of. I mean, I wanted. A, a movie star from that generation because Doc Graham, who was a real character, who actually existed in Chisholm, Minnesota, uh, he was a star to that town. And I thought it'd be fun to have somebody from another era, a movie star from another era, to, to work with Kevin. And Bert had been a, an acrobat, as a, he was a circus acrobat uh, as a young man. He was an incredibly fit athlete. And I thought, man, it'd be great. You know, I believe he would have been a baseball player. And he took the role and he said to me, um, you know, I, I didn't understand this, but my, my coach told me I should do this. And I said, oh, that's good. He had a, he had a dialect coach or something. He, said, he told me I should do it. I said, oh, great. And he says, um, I want to wear a mustache <laughs> and, and a little hat. And I said, really, how come? He says, I don't want to look like Burt Lancaster. <laughs> and at the read-through, which is the first time anybody in the, in the cast met everybody else, we, we, we had a rehearsal hall somewhere with a big table, and everybody in the cast sat around the table, and... Uh, some of the first time somebody mentions the name Graham, Bert said, uh, no, no, not Graham, Graham, like Graham crackers. <laughs> and she said, uh, Graham. He goes, no, no, Graham. She goes, Graham, because that's it, Graham. <laughs> and everybody looked around the table like we had no idea what the difference was, but it, <laughs> it mattered somehow. He was quite a character. 
Uh, his the first shot is actually one of my favorite directing shot. He's in the blue kind of mm. moonlight. Was that something you thought about while you're writing the script, or you kind of think about when you put your director hat on? You know, I I think when I was in writing, I I, I may have described it as sort of spectral or slightly eerie, but it, it's really only when you get to when you find a location when you start to figure out how are you going to get that effect. And that street uh, is a is a preserved historical street in Galena, Illinois. Um, it's a 19th century street, and, they, and they've gotten grants from the government to keep it uh, looking like that. And they allowed us to take it over for, I think, two full nights um, to, to shoot that scene because we had to clear everything out. And it's quite fun. You know, we put the movie marquee up, and we put the, the Nixon poster. And, I, you know, this print, you can actually see what else is in the window. I thought it was so clever. No one ever noticed it, but in the window where it says Nixon, four more years... Uh, they're selling tape recorders. <laughs> I, and I thought that was really clever, but the, the film print was always so dark you could never actually see it. But in a digital print, you can see it. So, finally. It's, uh, and Frank Wally, who played you know, the younger version, was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you realize he did his one at bat is not actually in a bat. That's the sacrifice right. fly. Oh, you're right. Was that intentional or was that just something? As, uh, no, but it was a, it, we did want to give him... Um, a, a, a small victory somehow, and not a home run that that shatters the lights, you know, like the end of the natural. We wanted to give him something that was that was real that he could actually say, "Hey, man, I did something cool." I stared down the pitcher, and um, uh, and I don't remember if that was in the book or not. I was and was it in the book the fact that he would save the girl? Was that always planned out, or you yes, yeah. that was in the book, um, and it's always. Um, a very interesting thing at that moment the audience is always kind of shocked because this is not the kind of movie where you hurt anybody and so when you see her falling off and she fell off into you know we had mats so she really only fell a couple of feet into a mat and hurt herself but it still it takes your breath away it's also the first moment in the film with an orchestra uh, James Horner who scored, scored the film was playing uh, up until that point it was synthesizers piano um, Peruvian percussion, uh, some little windy things, I forget what they were, and no orchestra. And that's the first moment where the orchestra comes in. So it really kind of hits you. That's a great, it's, a, it's a great moment. I mean, I saw some tears in the audience, by the way, and some tense people hadn't seen the movie before. Yeah. Um, so, and also, you had a great other subtle, subtle moment, which I know has got a big cheer from the audience when Terrence Mann meets the woman who wrote the obituary. Yeah. And kind of the little wink that I know you're a writer, but I didn't want to say. That was, that was a very sweet scene. The, the actress, uh, Anne, Anne Seymour, I think? Right? I think so, yeah. I think so. Anne Seymour was a, uh, was a star in the 40s and 50s, uh, co-starred in, uh, with uh, uh, Roger Crawford in uh, the, the Huey Long. What was the, the uh, um, governor of all the King's Men? Thank you. <laughs> and she was quite elderly. She read beautifully at the audition and I thought, she's got this wonderful thing. And, and that scene, by the way, that obituary that she reads is the actual obituary that the editor of that small town paper wrote for the real Doc Graham. We go to shoot the scene. She's flown in for this. We come into the set and James Earl says, Anne. And she goes, Jimmy. And they hug. And I said, I take it you two know each other. And James Earl said, my very first Broadway appearance, I had one line in Sunrise at Campobello. It was Mrs. Roosevelt, dinner is served, and she was Mrs. Roosevelt. 
It's actually one of the things we teach with screenwriting when we talk about it. It's always good to have subtle moments. And Absolutely. almost like pull back a little and just let you know the moment kind of breathe. Absolutely, and and this was her last performance. She she passed away shortly after this, but she was very very dear, very sweet. We haven't talked about the main character yet, the baseball field. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I heard there was a little drought problem you had right before production and some yeah. other issues. It, you know, the summer of, we shot this in the summer of '88. It was the worst drought since the Dust Bowl. It was the worst drought in 50 years. And our schedule had been built upon uh, the, the growth of corn. Uh, you can only plant corn, I think, uh, it's, I don't know, April or something. It starts to show up in May. It starts getting bigger in June. And by July, you've got really tall corn. And I had said to our corn advisor, we had a corn <laughs> advisor. His name was Eldon Trum. He was the mayor of some little town near us. I said, on the first scene, when Kevin's in the field and he hears the voice, I need the corn to be up to here on him. He said, okay, that'll be the first week in July. I said, great. Kevin was contractually obligated to leave us the first week in August to go do another film. We had about four weeks of scenes in the corn, so we realized, okay, we have no flexibility. The first week in July, we do the scene with the corn up to here, and then we just shoot all the other corn scenes, and that gets us out of the movie, which also meant we had to shoot all of the non-corn scenes first, and normally what you want to do is you want to save your interior scenes for the end of the schedule so that if it rains someday, you can just pull one of those up and shoot it and not lose a day. This was scary. We were going to have no rain cover. We were going to shoot up all of our interior scenes first and then be stuck with the month of July in the corn. And as we started working, Eldon Trump was saying, you know, it's really dry. I said, yeah, yeah, dry. And we're working. And he's, then he says, you know, uh, boy, it's, it's like a drought. I said, oh, man, drought. And I'm not really connecting how this is going to affect my life. And then finally, one day in June, I'm out at the field, and I said, hey, Eldon, where's this corn that you've been working on? He goes, that's it. And I said, I got grass bigger than that at home. (laughs) And he said, I've been telling you, there's a drought. This is a a terrible, terrible drought. I said, well, but still, first week in July up to here, right? He goes, first week in July up to his ankles. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a really unimpressive opening to a movie. You know, Kevin, there's like a little bit of corn here, and he hears a voice. And... So we, we did two things. The, the art department, a great production designer named Dennis Gastner, who put a reserve on literally all the fake corn in the world. <laughs> I'm not kidding. There was fake corn in Japan he had reserved everywhere. And we, we were going to stick it all out in that field. We're going to fake corn. The other thing we did is we dammed up a creek and we started to irrigate and we trucked in water. And that stuff grew really fast. And we were the only farm in Iowa that had corn that summer, basically. <laughs> I mean, it was, it's funny now, but it was sad then. We, it was a half-hour drive to the set every day and you'd pass farm after farm after farm with just these stunted little gnarled nothings, you know. And we had all this corn, thankfully. And the first... The second scene, which is Kevin, uh, when he sees the vision of the field, we had to build him up on apple boxes. We had to actually put uh, planks in the corn for, for, to be able to see, over, see him over the corn. That's how fast it grows. Uh, I highly recommend, it's actually a museum. You can actually go to the ball field in Iowa. I did, actually, my mom passed away a few years ago, and I drove by there, and I got to play baseball with the kids. And it is magical. Like, you do feel a kind of... It's it, was, kind it, was of a lot of, it was a really good place. Yeah, my wife and I went there a couple of years ago. Um, it's quite lovely. They've kept up the field. The field was on two farmers' lands. 
and they've made a deal to kind of share. The first summer, the people who owned the house kept the infield and right field, uh, but the farmer who owned left and center field plowed and under and planted corn. And he, I think he got death threats. I mean, people were like knocking on his door saying, how, could you, how dare you plant corn in this field? So he said, All right, fine. So you can still go. It's, they get like 20,000, 30,000 visitors a summer. It's kind of amazing. This is great. Now, uh, this movie has a lot of magic, I mean, obviously, with a ghost. How did you ground that visually? Did you want to make sure it was kind of felt like reality? Absolutely. My, you know, I, I, going back to my not being a New Age person, I, and I think that to whatever extent I influenced that this works, I think it's that. Uh, I, when I was writing it, I kept saying, what would I do if I heard a voice? And so the lines about, you know, honey, did you hear, was there a sound truck on the highway? Were there kids with a radio? I just had to keep raising that so the audience didn't say, well, this is ridiculous. He had to keep questioning it. And I actually shot a scene, it's not in the movie anymore, where he went to get his hearing checked um, uh, to see if there's anything wrong with him. Uh, and the style, we, we, John Lindley, who was the DP, and I talked about always grounding it in reality, always making it look warm but real. And we had... Uh, visual effects companies came and pitched to us uh, their different approaches for how to make the players disappear. And they were all saying things like, we'll have these laser beams come down, and the <laughs> sky will turn orange. And, the, and I kept thinking, well, if they really disappeared, it wouldn't look like that. I kept thinking, what would it really look like if people disappeared when they walked in the corner? And I thought, they would just disappear. And so we did the simplest possible thing, which was just a match dissolve. It was simply put the camera here, let the players walk in, keep it rolling, roll off some more footage with nobody in it, and just dissolve at some point. And then the last one, which was Shoeless Joe going in, we did a, a, a motion control, which was a, a moving camera uh, that was controlled by computers, so that we actually did it once with Ray Liotta walking through, and once the exact same move without him, and then just dissolve between them. And I just felt like the, simplest, the simpler you make it, the more believable it could be. As soon as we, if we tried to introduce elements of magic, visual elements of magic, I think it would make it harder to believe. And the audience wouldn't accept what's going on, and you can't really have that. And that would be my fear. Yeah. Yeah, it was also a great shot. My favorite, one of my favorite shots is Shoeless Joe is behind the fence talking about being banned from baseball. Yeah. It was almost like the prison thing. Was that something you thought of when you were writing? It was just like he's in prison? Or? Not writing, but certainly when we, were, when we were out there on the field. You know, we, we decided we had to put up a backstop. Uh, in the script, there was an out, outfield fence, and actually, as the players would go, would come out through a wall, a door in the fence. It was a wall, a wooden wall, and the production designer kept showing me sketches of this wooden wall in the outfield. I kept saying, I, I don't believe that, and he'd show me a different one. I said, I don't buy it. And then finally, one day, I said, Why would he build a fence? Why not just let the corn be the outfield wall? And and Dennis loved that idea because it meant. He had, you know, didn't come out of his budget. You know? <laughs> so, um, and it was actually prettier, I think. But if you look on the book, if you see on the cover of the book, there's a there's a wooden wall in the outfield, and we both were thinking, why, why would Ray spend the money to build a wall there? So that was the level of kind of of fantasy versus reality thinking that we actually got into. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's also time to talk about the scene, which I did see some people crying in the audience. The dad scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, the catch. What were the challenges with that scene? Because that's the money, sh- you know. Shot. Shot, sorry. So to speak. Um, the, uh, if you build it. Um, um, <laughs> stop that. Um, in, as I said, in the book, it was not a surprise and it wasn't the ending. 
as soon as we made it the ending in, and a surprise, it, it was clear on the page that this could work. Um, when we shot that scene, it was very late in the schedule. The, I, I can't describe it except to say that everybody on that set was very uh, quiet, very emotional. Everybody was very quiet, was very subdued. You could tell everybody was feeling something there. It was, it's really one of the few times in my life I've ever felt on a set the emotion that you kind of want to have on the scene, and not just among the actors, but everybody. Everybody was kind of a little bit on edge and very quiet. And uh, we shot the scene. It went fairly easily. We shot most of it at Magic Hour, right, right around Magic Hour, which is a misnomer. Magic Hour really lasts 15 minutes. So we, we tried to get as much in as we could just before and just up through, through it. Um, it went really well, except for one thing, which is that when I was writing it, I had a very strong uh, desire for neither the father nor the son to ever verbally acknowledge, you're my father, you're my son. And I thought, we're going to do this visually. It'll be much more interesting. So when the father comes up, Ray says, uh, Annie, uh, uh, the little girl, whatever her name was, um, what was her name? Karen, Karen. thank you. <laughs> I've got to stop taking naps during the day. says, Karen, this is my, and there's a shot of the father kind of like giving him a look, a little, I think a little warning look, and he stops and he goes, uh, this is John. I thought that was clear at that point, that they each understood what the relationship was. We had our first test screening, and the audience, you could tell they were right with it, and, and in the focus group, everybody said, oh my God, we were so with this film, and then at the end it becomes cruel. Why didn't he tell him, you're my father? And the guy leading the focus group said, you don't think he knew? Nope, nope, he didn't know. And they were pissed off at us. And so when we looped, the line was, hey, you want to have a catch? And we had Kevin say, hey, Dad, you want to have a catch? And the next screening, the scores went through the roof. Well, there, there, there was a moment where he, uh, the father looks at Kevin Costner, almost like, would you please tell your granddaughter? Yes. So I'm wondering, they just need the payoff where like, he was withholding it. I thought it was clear, but that audience said it was not clear. They felt that, it, that uh, the father didn't know. And so our desire to be kind of subtle failed us. And fortunately, there was a fix to it, which was one word. Uh, and then, but then you have to get into, when you're editing that scene, where does that word go? Is it, um, we, we couldn't be on, on uh, Kevin for Hey Dad, because we would see he's not saying it. So we had to be, he says, hey, I think he says, Hey, we cut to the father turning, and you hear Dad, you want to have a catch. It was a little tricky. We tried a whole bunch of different where, where places of putting it. And then after it was all done, I realized... I wonder if it should have been, hey, you want to have a catch? Yes, son, I'd like that. I don't know. <laughs> I think it was pretty impactful seeing the audience cry. So. I think it worked. I think it definitely worked. Um, is there any challenge when you wear two hats as a writer-director? Do you like to separate your process, or you kind of mix it, them together? Oh, to me, it's two, it's two sides of the same coin. It's storytelling. And um, I find a great advantage in directing something I've written because I feel like I really know... Uh, I know where the root rot is. You know, I, I know where the places are that uh, it may not be obvious, but that I haven't really figured something out. And I know then on the set I've got I've to compensate for that. And, and I also feel like by the time I've gotten to the set, if I've written it, I really know why every word is there. I once heard Leonard Bernstein say that when you're conducting a symphony, 
you have to know the purpose for every note that every instrument plays. And as a writer-director, I feel like I, I kind of come close to that. I do feel like I know why everything's in there. And when I've directed things I haven't written, I've tried to get there, but it's not, not, as, not as close for me. And you mentioned, of course, Tom Pollock, the studio executive. What was, what was the collaboration there? Because you did struggle so much with the film beforehand. Uh, the collabor- it was fantastic because Tom uh, was so supportive. And I remember a conversation that we had about casting uh, and where you said, you can cast anybody you want in this role. The budget will expand or contract accordingly, which I thought was a really smart thing to say. Most studios sort of micromanage these things. And it's very simple. It's like he was going to trust the creative team. We had wonderful producers, uh, Larry and Chuck Gordon. Um, we're going to find the right person for it. Obviously, the studio would have to approve that. But, you know, he, he said, cast an unknown if that's who you think is best. You're just going to have a smaller budget. Um, and that was exactly the right way to do it. We did have some people on the list uh, who I don't think most people had heard of. They certainly weren't movie stars necessarily, and some were. But Kevin, oh, my God. It's like when, when we heard that Kevin would actually make two baseball movies in a row, we thought, this is just too great. Well, I saw an interview with him. He said I just couldn't turn down such a great script. I didn't care that I did another baseball movie just beforehand. He also, you know, he's, he's the kind of guy who, if conventional wisdom says you must do this, he's not going to do it. He's really, he's really, you know, and it's, people have criticized him for choices he's made. I got to tell you, the guy uh, really trusts his instincts. He's an artist, and he's willing to accept failure. He's willing to, to try something and fall on his face because what he wants to do is explore what he wants to explore, and I so respect that. And a, a, a lesser artist would never have followed Bull Durham with, with Shoeless Joe, with, with Field of Dreams. And did you notice, did you, did you see his talent for a director? Because, you know, he danced at Dance of Wolves right after that and a few others. You know, he was writing, he and, and his partner were writing Dances with Wolves on the set in Iowa. He'd go on his, tra- they'd go on his trailer and they'd be writing... And every once in a while, he'd say to me, we'd do a shot, and he'd say, why do you use that lens? And I'd say, why use that lens? And he'd say, so that lens, and you just made it, the camera moved like, you know, four feet or so. I said, yeah, I just wanted to do this. And he was just making mental notes. I, I take no credit whatsoever for what he did, because I thought Dances with Wolves was a spectacular film. It was really, it was, an, it was just an extraordinary accomplishment. And I'll say also that, I, I mean, I... I look at the film now, or this film, and I enjoy it. Uh, every night of the shoot, I went home thinking I had failed another day. That I would look at the dailies and I would think, I didn't get it. And Because I, I had in my head a much more expressionistic use of the camera. And what I discovered during the shooting of this film was that I didn't have the chops to do it. I didn't know how to do what I had in my head. And I think, in retrospect, it's a good thing I didn't, because I think this very simple approach served the film much better than, you know, being fancy with the camera. I think if I had been able to... I mean, I, I know now how to do it. If I'd known then, I think I would have ruined the film. I know you did, like, a lot of tracking shots. You like moving the camera. Is that something you just kind of gravitate towards? Or? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, not, it's a film without car chases and, and fights and action, so I, I did want to keep things moving... Uh, subtly uh, I remember when we shot the scene on the bleachers uh, when uh, they're watching the game at the end and then the brother-in-law shows up and James Earl makes a speech it was about six pages 
And I remember thinking, I can't have everybody just sitting in one place for six pages. I've got to get people up, getting up, moving around. And when you do that, uh, you increase the amount of coverage you have to shoot exponentially. So when this person is talking to this person, here's my shot of you. Now when you move over here, I've got to get a different angle on you talking to this person, a different angle on you talking to that person. And it increases enormously. I had this huge shot list. And we started shooting the sequence. It was about two or three days of shooting for that sequence. And every shot, my DP would say, you know, the bright sunlight on him right now, uh, there's not going to be a cloud for another 30 minutes or so. Did you want to get a shot of her when she's talking to him on page three? And, yeah, okay, let's do that. We just threw the shot list out. And we finish a shot, and we look at the clouds and the sun. What looks good right now? Oh, this would look good. How about for the end of the scene when he walks over, we'll do that now. I was so confused <laughs> that on the second day, I was shooting a close-up of Amy Madigan, who always, first take, nails it. And I said, oh, great, that was great. Let's just do one more for protection. We did a second take, nailed it. And something was bugging me. Something felt wrong. And I said to her, I'm sorry, just do one more. She goes, why? I said, I don't know, something, uh, let's just do one more. Did a third take, she was perfect. And then I figured it out. And I walked over to her and I said, we shot this yesterday, didn't we? And she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, I'm really, I apologize, I'm just hanging on by my thumbs. And she said, thank you for your honesty, we know. <laughs> <laughs> How many days was the shoot, roughly? 40-something? 45, uh-huh. 60, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was between 45 and 60. Yeah, you said it looked very risky when you have a lot of exterior shots. You know, with a... And we did. In fact, there was one night. Uh, there's a couple of shots in there with lightning. You know, he's waiting for the ghost to show up, and we have a shot of lightning. There was one night when a Midwest storm hit, and we had nothing else to shoot. So we all just sat uh, on the porch. We turned out all the lights in the house and on the field, and we sat and watched one of the great light shows I've ever seen in my life. And just said to the camera operator, just start just shoot, shoot some lightning here. We'll use it somehow. But we spent hours sitting on the porch pouring rain and went home early that night and it was we wound up going a week or two over schedule mm-hmm. um, sorry <laughs> I didn't mean to James Earl gave an interview recently where he said I didn't realize it at the time but my character was dead and I read that and I said really? <laughs> now I'm, I believe this film is you know we were intentionally ambiguous about so much that you could read it that way, I suppose. It's very possible, but that was not intentional. There were all kinds of things that people read into it. I remember um, somebody said, um, you know, when Kevin has the vision of the field, the field is backwards from the way it is eventually built, which, and Shoeless Joe, of course, is batting right-handed when in real life he bat left-handed. This was the director's way of saying this is a mirror image of the real world. No, we just... <laughs> <laughs> Ray Liotta couldn't hit left-handed. Ray Liotta <laughs> couldn't hit left-handed. So I said, don't worry, nobody alive has seen Shoeless Joe bat. So what difference does it make? And, of course, we got criticized. People said, oh, he batted right, left-handed and threw right-handed, but Ray Liotta bats right-handed and throws left-handed. And I thought, you know, there's a much bigger inconsistency in the Shoeless Joe character that nobody criticized us for. The real Shoeless Joe Jackson is dead. <laughs> Critics. <laughs> James Earl said to me, what happens to me when I go into the corn? Do I die? And I said, you know, I don't have a clue. I have no idea. 
And I said, does it really matter? He said, no. I said, because the character doesn't know where he's going, so why should I, t- if I knew, why should I tell you? And he said, here's what I think. You know, I said I'm going to write about it. He said, I think that next summer, Kevin is out mowing the outfield grass, and a little paper airplane comes out of the corn. <laughs> and he opens it up, and it's my story. <laughs> and I said, that's pretty sweet. Let's go with that. I like that. So we shot the scene. And, and he said, what do I do when I disappear? I said, I think it tickles when you disappear. So that's why he does that little giggle. And we finished shooting it, and we, we cut, and Flynn, little Flynn comes over, and he goes, Daddy, what happens to you when you go into the corn? And James O. said, infinity. <laughs> <laughs> when the Iowa Film Commission had come to Los Angeles to meet with us to try to convince us to shoot the film in Iowa, because we were looking everywhere, uh, the they said, is there anything else that we can do to offer? They said, we're going to give you, you know, free office space and a free warehouse that, you know, you'll be able to set up everything. And is there anything else you want? And I said, yeah, you know, I had this, I was thinking that might be a cool end shot. This wasn't in the script at the time. That uh, we pull up from the field in a helicopter and we see just miles of cars, all these people coming. And they said, we will handle it. We'll do it. We'll get it for you. I said, cool. So I wrote into the script. Uh, Halfway through the shoot, one afternoon at lunch, our still photographer and I went up in a helicopter, hovered over the farm, and took a big wide shot of the whole area. And she blew it up into a sheet this big, and I outlined in magic marker where I wanted the cars. And we had a production assistant drive that route. It was really from the farm to this little town called Dyersville, the town center. And it was X miles. We divided by the average length of a car and a little space in between, and it came out to 2,500 cars. <laughs> so we said to the Dubuque, the, the Iowa Film Commission, congratulations, you're getting us 2,500 cars and drivers. And they said, okay. And the day we shot that, the plan was we shot in the morning, and then we were going to take the whole afternoon to sweep out the farm. All of the motor, you know, the motor homes, all of the equipment had to be gone because we were going to see everything. Um, a local radio station was broadcasting from the house, and all of the people were, who, in their own cars, were to- told to listen to this radio station for instructions. And we spread them out. We hired the greatest movie helicopter pilot, a man named Davy Jones, who did all the stuff in Apocalypse Now. We rehearsed the shot, and just before dusk, we, we knew we'd have time for three, three takes. And we did the first one too early just to have it under our belt. And, you know, we pulled up and on action people start driving up and we get that shot, we land, but now all the cars have gotten kind of close together. So the second take, which was the light was beautiful, as we're pulling up, they're not moving a whole lot. And, and it looked, once we got to a certain altitude, it looked like we just strung lights out on the road. We had time for one more take and I thought, I'm going to try something. And I walkie-talkie to the cinematographer was in the house next to the disc jockey on my cue have people alternate their high and low beams so we got up to a certain altitude and and they did this with their lights and that's really what you're seeing they're not moving uh, you know past the drive up to just the driveway past that they're still they're moving their lights we thought okay lights gone let's go home two nights later we all gather in our warehouse to watch the dailies and the first take too bright we knew that second take as soon as the helicopter goes up the 
camera assistant, instead of opening up the aperture, shut it down, and the screen went black. Oh. And we're watching. It's a three-minute take. And we're just watching it and watching it, thinking, I hope he didn't do it on the third take. And it was the longest three minutes of my life. <laughs> and it's like nobody was breathing. And on the third take, he did it, which is the take where we had people doing this with their lights. The third take, he did it. He irised out perfectly, and the shot worked. Um, absent that, we never could have recreated that. Um, today, you could do that easily with CGI. Uh, you know, you'd have the first hundred cars in real, and the rest you just, the computer could do it. The computer could track it, you know, as the camera moves. This, that technology just, I don't think it could have been done then. We had ILM working for us, and, and they, they didn't think, they thought the right way to do it was really stage it. So we had 2,500 cars, and there's people still in Dubuque, Iowa, who have the little buttons. You know, I was in the last shot of Shoes Joe. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, we always end our show with uh, one question. Uh, if you could share with us a, a favorite movie theater experience you had growing up, or family, or... Oh. Well, I, it's not a... Well, I'll d- I was going to say that my, well, the, a favorite memory of mine is when I was five years old, uh, my dad took my brother and me uh, to Ebbets Field to see the Brooklyn Dodgers. Um, and, uh, and I actually have pictures of me uh, in my little Dodger uniform uh, at five, and, and I've never forgotten that. And one of the things that I loved about seeing 42 this year, it was a very sweet movie about Jackie Robinson, is they recreated Ebbets Field through computer graphics so beautifully that you really feel like you're there. And it was, it was just a magical sort of traveling back in time for me to, to, to feel that again. Uh, but a, a movie experience um, growing up uh, I, I remember on a, one Saturday morning watching uh, in those days you at all hours of the day or night on television on two or three channels you could see old movies it was just constant and I'd heard about this movie but I'd never seen it and I decided to watch it uh, and uh, it was Citizen Kane. And even you know, on a crappy black and white television, interrupted by commercials, I just thought this is something beyond anything I'd ever experienced. This was this was a cinema as an art form in a way. I mean, I'd gone to like cowboy movies and Abbott and Costello movies and things. This was cinema, and it was the first time I really felt sort of physically felt the difference, and it was just extraordinary. And that feel, that has never left me. I could watch that film every day and still feel that. Well, I want to thank Phil Olden Robinson for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're so happy that our, our final show of the season, we, we come back in the fall, was be able to share Field of Dreams with Tom Pollock in oh, the Tom Pollock the Poly Theater. It's been, it's been a great honor for all of us. And we, I want to thank the interns, of course for doing such a great job putting the show together. So thank you. And please come back next week for Cheers. If we're just, we have the offer at the box office. If you want to come by and get some tickets. But uh, thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.